start by reading Acts 17 to get a context for the whole relationship between Paul and Thessalonia, Thessalonica and uh, why Paul would actually write the things that he's going to need to write in 2 Thessalonians. It's only 42 verses long, by the way. And yet, though it's only 42 verses long, you're going to find uh, somewhere roughly about 21 times the term the Lord in one way, like the Lord Jesus Christ, I think. Hey, sir. Um, and so, uh, so you're going to find the term the Lord over 20 times. You're going to find the term God nearly 20 times, which means roughly in the 42 verses that you have here, you're actually going to basically find that there's like one mention of either God or the Lord by name in all of these or 47 verses, I'm sorry, roughly one per verse. That's what we're going to find here. So we actually don't have to run through this. We can, get, we can take our time and enjoy the context of this because the texts we're going to look at today are really, really important for us. Obviously, because they're scripture, they're really important. But they're also extremely not taught in most circumstances. And we're talking about the end of the world. We're talking about the second coming of Jesus. We're talking about the Antichrist. Things that a lot of people actually try to stay away from because they think it's actually convoluted. There's nothing convoluted about it. It's actually rather simple. If you actually just read the Bible and believe it. The moment that you hand it over to experts to take it and make you believe that what it looks like isn't what it is, then everything is confusing. But I've kind of learned that, you know, when you, when you have a crayon box and it's like white is white and purple is purple, usually it's pretty simple. But they're like, oh, well, you're sure that's not periwinkle or lavender? And I'm like, now all of a sudden it's complicated. And, uh, but scripture is much more a very simple crayon box. So <clears throat> I'm going to take a moment, we're going to pray. And then we're going to look at, uh, first of all, Acts 17 for our context before we jump into our 47 verses of first, our second Thessalonians. So let's pray. I want to thank you for the privilege of being able to take this time, Lord, and to enjoy you and enjoy each other, to worship you in the study of your word and to worship you in song. We pray for the salvation of every person downstairs. For the new crew that's, uh, that's showing up, Lord, and for Claude and the others here who kind of know us already. and Lord, it just seems like there's a whole shift change. But Lord, I pray that, I mean, you're the God who brought the original shift here that you, and you gave us so much favor with them. Now we pray the same and more for the next group, but that they would all come to know you. And may we shine as lights, Lord, to those people in a way, Lord, that they would get, they would understand and they would recognize that Jesus, you're so much more than just another religion option. And I pray that this text would impact us, that we would be profoundly ministered to. And I just pray, Lord, that you would now let our hearts and our minds and our spirits be completely open to all that you want to do. Thank you for bringing us around this table. In Jesus' name. Amen. We'll read around. Now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul, as the custom was, went into them, as the three Sabbaths, reading with them from the scriptures. Standing and demonstrating that Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead, and saying, This Jesus, whom I preach to you, is the Christ. 
and some of them were persuaded, and a great multitude of the devout Greeks, and of the few of the leading women, joined Paul and Silas. But the Jews who were not persuaded, <coughs> becoming envious, took some of the evil men from the marketplace and gathered in mobs, set all the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, and sought to bring them out to the people. But when they did not find him, they dragged Jason from Redmond to the rulers of the city, crying out, These who have turned the world upside down have come here too. Jason has harbored them, and these are all sorry, and these are all acting contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying there is another king, Jesus. And they troubled the crowd and the rulers of the city when they heard these things. So when they had taken security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. Then the brethren immediately sent Paul and Cyrus away by night to Berea. When they arrived, they went into the synagogue of the Jews. <laughs> these were more there were, these were more fair-minded than those in Thessalonica in that they received the word with all readiness and searched the scriptures daily to find out where these things were so. And for many of them believed, and also not a few of the Greeks, prominent women as well as men. When the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was preached by Paul of Berea, they came there also and stirred up the crowd. And immediately the brethren sent Paul away to go to the sea I'll read that last verse and I'm just putting context to this it says so those who conducted Paul brought him to Athens and received a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him with all speed and they departed now here's my question look at the text how long was Paul, Silas and Timothy how long were they in Thessalonica yeah three weeks it says they were there for three Shabbats Three Sabbaths. I mean, at most, almost four. It all depends on what day they showed up. But they were not there for four weeks. Imagine planning a work in three weeks. You, you're there to plan a church. And you're there and you share in the synagogue. And as you, hey, Nick, come on in. Not at all. Imagine you're going into a place that's an idol-worshiping community. They've never heard of Jesus. There is a synagogue there, so there's a very strong or predominant Jewish faction there, and Paul shows up there, and for three weeks, three, sh- three Shabbats, this guy goes and he reasons, first of all, you guys know that a Christ is coming, now let me tell you, Christ is the one, this is this Jesus guy, he's the Christ. But it seems like in all situations, Paul always seems to show up there until he gets them quite angry, and then he winds up ultimately showing up to the Gentiles, and then he has this great conversion rate. Well, basically, understand, a church was planted in three weeks, and he fled for his life because a crowd of people stormed where Paul was staying and wanted to kill him. So they're like, you need to get out of here. So Paul flees, and he heads 20 miles west to the area of Berea. It doesn't change what he does. He does the same thing. But Paul fled for his life. Church planted in three weeks. Woo! What's up with us, man? And when he gets there, he starts to share. And it tells us that the Bereans were more fair-minded than the rest in this. 
that they not only listened to what he had to say, but they searched the scriptures to see what it was so. And this is why we say, be a Berean, don't just believe what I say. Search the scriptures. Be fair-minded. Do you know what it means to be fair-minded? That means you've got a pretty mind. Not that beautiful mind, weird Russell Crowe thing, but more like, your, your mind is good looking. Well, that's what he's saying here. He's going, let me tell you, this is what it was. There was not a cynicism, but an honest skepticism. Huge difference. A cynic doesn't care about the truth. They've made up their mind, but they pretend to be open-minded. A skeptic says, I'm not going to believe unless there's good reason for it. And they were genuinely careful, but they were also genuinely open. But notice it says that the Thessalonians, Thessalonians, the Thessalonians had actually traveled that distance to go and chase Paul out of the whole area of Macedonia. Don't miss that. So Paul flees from that area, having tried to plant two churches, not spending much more than a couple weeks in each of the places. And then he winds up down in Athens, and he goes, now what do I do? So he sends boys up. Silas, by the way, is a conjunction of the name Silvanus. It's a short one. The same way we might say Tim is short for Timothy. Tunde is short for Tunde Alakhmedachmedachmedachmedachmedachmedachmedachmedachmedachmedachmedachmedachmedachmedachmedachmedachmedachmedachmedachmedachmedachmedachmedachmedachmedachmedachmedachmedachmedachmedachmedachmedach
It doesn't say he checked for spiritual gifts. It doesn't say he checked whether they had a banging worship team. It didn't say they checked if they had a great preacher. And how would you know after three weeks? Who do you leave to lead a three-week-old church? And that's if, assuming that the believers that started, somehow people started believing when Paul showed up there and preached on the Sabbath. So they come back and they're like, well, good news, bad news. Good news is, they do trust Jesus. And Paul would say they turned from, ser- from serving idols to the true and living God. So it wasn't like they weren't religious or spiritual. But now they're actually correct in it. He goes, but here's the problem. They not only believe the rapture, but because of that, it led them to some inevitable conclusions. If you believe that Jesus was coming back at any given moment, here's a couple problems. One of those problems is that what happens if you die? What if Jesus comes back and you die before that? Did you miss the rapture? What, do you, what happens to you now? Well, Paul has to address that issue. As a matter of fact, which is clear that they believed in a rapture because in 1 Thessalonians 4, he says, Now, concerning those who have fallen asleep, I don't want you to, to grieve as those who have no hope, for we believe that if those who died, well, then Christ will actually, they will arrive with Christ when he comes. And it says, For the Lord will descend from heaven with a loud command, the voice of the archangel, and the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. And after that, we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with the Lord in the air. And therefore, we will always be with the Lord. Comfort each other with those words. Because those words should actually bring you great comfort. And when he writes 1 Thessalonians, what he makes clear is that the every, at the end of every one of those five chapters, it ends with the idea of Christ's return. So there was that area. All right. You, you know, because there were those who were saying, well, you're in trouble. Great-grandma's 98. Jesus better come back soon. And he's like, don't worry about that. You'll see great-grandma again. But there's still problems. Now all of a sudden, and I remind you, when Paul planted the church in Thessalonica, there was a lot of, there was a lot of persecution. Paul fled from that community. The problem was, I'd like you to consider, a church was born there, and it wasn't like they, they laid it easy on the church. But if you gave your life to Christ and you knew that you'd have to forsake everything... You could no longer call yourself African, English, whatever you want to, wherever you want to come from. You could no longer have the family that you have. You could no longer have the job that you would have because all those people were going to kick you out or actually, worse yet, make you like Jason Bourne. What kind of church do you think you'd have? I guarantee you, you wouldn't have a huge numerically, but you would have an on-fire church because every person who was there knew that this was coming at a cost and it was not an easy faith. It was a faith that it was expensive. And he says, you know what? You guys have a model faith. The rest of the world is watching you guys. You know why they're watching you? Because you guys are putting up with that horrible persecution. And Paul's like, I know, I fled for my life from that place. You guys are still there. And he says, the rest of the world is drawing comfort from you guys as a result of that. He goes, you have a famous faith. So you guys hold on to that. So when he looked, what he saw was a famous faith and love for one another. That's what it looked like. But now, when he sends that letter, he's still in Corinth, and he spends a year and a half in Corinth, and he gets news back, and the news is this. Well, now there's a second issue with problems, and here it is. By this point, it seems to me that they've caught wind on Jesus' sermon in Matthew 24. And in Matthew 24, Jesus said a couple really heavy things about the end times. One of the things he said 
was you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And he goes, you will be persecuted so bad that it'll actually be as if those who are killing you genuinely believe they're doing God a favor. They're doing God's service. When Jesus spoke of that, he spoke about that being during a time of tribulation, the great tribulation. Well, you have a church here who is getting hammered for their faith. So someone takes that information and connects dots that should not be connected, and that is, we did miss the rapture. And not only did we miss the rapture, we're in the great tribulation. And Paul goes, oy vey. Actually, we don't have what he says, oy vey, but get the idea. What we do have is that Paul is looking, and in 47 verses, he has to address this issue. And he's addressing three basic things. In chapter 1, he's addressing the issue that persecution, strangely enough, is an honor. But don't worry. Jesus has got this handled. So chapter 1 is going to address that issue of persecution. Chapter 2 is going to address that issue of tribulation. As he now then addresses and says, all right, listen, you guys, that great tribulation we're speaking about, the day of the Lord, and I will we'll spend some time reading a handful of verses just to make sure we got it straight. It hasn't happened yet. That'll be really clear. And one of the reasons I know that is because you guys are still there. But then in the third chapter, he says, you know, but then there are others who actually are going, well, if the Lord's going to come back at any moment, I might as well get lazy and do nothing. Be busy, but for no real purpose. Calls them busy buddies. And he says, get up and get to work. In the second, in the first Thessalonian letter, he actually says, remember, this is the will of God that you mind your own business and work with your hands. I actually really like that verse. I've quoted that sometimes when people are like, what are you doing? I'm like, oh, first Thessalonians. <clears throat> but in the second one, he's like, now look, at get to work because if you don't work, you shouldn't eat. The idea of it is, it's like, stop using the second coming of Jesus, the rapture, as an excuse. It should inspire you to action, not numb you to procrastination. So that's the simplicity of the whole book. You ready to read through it? All right. Now, we should have, if nothing else, perhaps you'd be willing to share with the world next year. So I remind you at this moment, it's roughly 51 A.D. It's the second longest Paul spends anywhere in all of his ministry that we have recorded. He spends longer here than in the church he pastored. He was only a year at the church in Antioch that he pastored. He spends a year and a half in Corinth and three years in, in uh, Ephesus. Now here he is, he's writing and he starts with this. And by the way, you'll, well, you'll see. You'll see. <coughs> Paul, Sylvanus, and Timothy. Obviously, Sylvanus is silent. Sure. To the church of the Thessalonians, in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We are bound to thank God always for you, brethren, and this is that your faith grows exceedingly, and the love of every one of you all around the world. And I'm going to keep cutting you guys off as you were. But notice again with his second letter, he is still again pointing out the same two things he's looking for in a church. Your faith grows exceedingly, and the love of everyone of you abounds. Apparently, 
as you walk with Christ, these two things should grow. I'd like you to consider that. When we talk about growing up in Jesus, what do you vision? Do you envision, well, if I'm old and I'm a guy, I should have a beard. I mean, look at Dan. I should be able to talk slower and have greater wisdom. Actually, two things I would expect to grow as you grow. One is your faith. And all faith is, by the way, it's not a fancy term, pistu just means trust. You know, one of the reasons why we have a greater faith as we get older? Well, one, because we can't afford not to. But because we've seen Jesus take us through worse situations. The first time, and it's like this, by the way, when you look at the two storms the disciples go through on the Sea of Galilee. And the first one, they wake up Jesus, remember, and they're like, don't you care, we're dying, and we're going to perish, we're not going to make it. Right? And Jesus is like, all right, be still, and the whole thing's over. And then the second time through, it says they're rowing on an adverse wind that's keeping them from getting anywhere, and they're in the middle of the lake. It's only six miles wide, and uh, as you can remember. And, and it's the case, and basically, Jesus comes walking on the water, they invite him into the boat, and instantly, boom, they're on the other side. As we're younger, everything's about thinking we're never going to make it to the storm. But as we get older, it's just about getting to the other side. They're like, oh no, I've been in worse storms than this. But now, Lord, I'm ready for you to get me to the other side of this one. And he looks at me and goes, look, at your faith and your love, these are two things I would expect to grow. Your love, by the way, I remind you, that's abject selflessness and commitment to others. Imagine, can you imagine what it would look like to see a mature church in Christ? According to Ephesians 4, every part does its share, which means a healthy, mature church means every person in the church is doing something to serve someone else. Could you imagine that? How does that fit within a mega church model? With all due respect, I've come from that. Because what we learn is a handful of experts do this stuff because they do it very entertainingly. And the rest of us have learned how to do this as a spectator sport. But he says, a healthy church, a healthy body. Aren't you glad that every part of your body is supposed to be doing what it's doing? What parts of your body do you want to be a spectator? Well, in that, love becomes manifest in every one of us. You start seeing abject selfishness. Could you imagine seeing just a, a church of 40 people where every one of them was completely selfless? I, I think we'd be like, this is the closest thing to heaven I think I've ever seen. First Thessalonians 1.3 says, I remember without ceasing your labor of love, your work of faith, your labor of love, and your patience of hope. In First Thessalonians 3.6, when he says, Timothy has come from us and brought us good news of your faith and your love. In 1 Thessalonians 5, 8, he says, But let those who are of the day be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love. Always the same things he's looking for. Verse 4. And I'll try not to do this all the time, but it starts. So that we ourselves, both of you, among the churches of God, for your patience and faith in all your persecutions and tribulations that you endure. Which is a manifest servant of the righteousness, of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which we also suffer. Since it is a righteous claim of God to repay the tribulation those who trouble you and to give you through a troubled rest of us when the Lord Jesus was healed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire taking vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's stop there for a moment. Wait a minute. God's punishing people who don't know him? That's a harsh thing. 
I have to develop this, obviously. Let's start with this. Notice they're being persecuted. In verse 4, it says, the tribulations that you endure. The word endure for what it's worth, and Achamai means to stand up against. And then he says, in verse 5, which is the manifest evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be counted worthy of the kingdom of God, for which you also suffer. Anytime someone has to be the disciplinarian, someone's going to question whether what they're saying and doing is right. The Lord is coming and He's going to pronounce judgment. And there are those who are going to say, that's not fair. And what what we read here is, you're getting hammered only proves that God's judgment is right. Because you are getting hammered and God punishing those who trouble you is kind of a duh if you're his people. You pick on my kids, do not be surprised if a real ugly looking fury comes at you. And he says, because it is a righteous thing for you're getting hammered by other people and God repaying them? It only proves that God's right in His judgment. Crisis is the word, like crisis. When He repays with tribulation those who trouble you. The word, the base word, slibo, slibo, slipsis, same word, means to pressure or to be crowded in. He goes, when people pressure you, when they push on you, and goes, God doesn't have a problem pushing back for you. And there's a day when He's going to do that. But those of you who have been pushed around, He knows how to give rest. And that is a righteous thing. You all with me so far? Mm-hmm. Okay, that's actually the easier part, right? But then he says, In flaming fire, taking vengeance on those who do not know God, nor those who obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, it is imperative to recognize, and this is where a little bit of grammar, and forgive me for the... Well, don't even forgive me. It's just grammar and it's imperative here. Things are based on one of three basic kind of perspectives. It's either active, passive, or reflexive. Active means you make it happen. Passive means it happens to you. Reflexive means you did it to yourself. So, Eddie turns around and he just smacks Jaden up the head. Eddie was active. He was the one who made it happen, which doesn't sound like Eddie, at least the Eddie I know. Jaden was passive. He received the action. All Jaden had to do to receive the smack upside the head was nothing. Does that make sense? Reflexive would be Shamar slapped himself upside the head. He actually made it happen and received it. Does that make sense? The reason I say that is the term know and the term obey are both active. That means you are the one making it happen. So when it says those who do not know God, what they're saying is those who will not know God. They are making a choice not to know Him. God is not punishing someone for their ignorance. God is punishing someone for their refusal to know Him. God says, know me. And they say, no way. And what's even worse is it's the word idol. The two Greek words for to know, one is to know by relational experience, and the other is to just know by perception. It's the 
Hido. It's the one that's actually like this color is this, this is a table, this is roughly white or whatever. But you get the idea. These are basic facts. You're like, no way. I'm actually not going to believe in that math stuff. And I refuse to call one one. I mean, that's what we're saying because that's how fundamental the existence of God is. And people are like, there is no way. I'm, you know why I'm not going to know him? Because I'm not going to obey him. And if I pretend like I don't know that he exists, well, then I don't have to obey him. And God says, those are the ones that are getting punished. But when they don't, when they refuse to know him and they refuse to obey, you know what they do instead? They make your life miserable. And that's what he's saying. He's going to repay. But I want to remind you, put all this together in the same soup. He's going to repay those who trouble you. Who are those who trouble you? Those who refuse to know God and refuse to obey him. Interesting, those are the two sides it ends up with. Verse 9. Who has that? Okay. Uh, oh. These shall be punished uh, with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. Let me ask you, what does God's destruction look like? Separation from his presence and glory. You know what real destruction is? Being from the presence of God. Isn't that sad, but true? It's not annihilation, because he tells us it's everlasting. But the everlasting ruin, the word destruction there. Alephros. Do you realize people are living in that destruction right now, and they think they're okay? But the presence of God's Holy Spirit is everywhere. We're aware of that. Remember, it dwells with an unbeliever, pushing him to the cross. They're just refusing to accept him. and re- well, They're refusing to accept Jesus and therefore know him. But the world wants a world without him. And that's what the tribulation is going to look like. And you're like, no, you don't want that. It's hell without him. So when God talks about destruction, there are people having a taste of it just the same way that he talks about salvation. We have a taste of that now. But man, wait, I can hardly wait for the main course. You ever walk by one of those stores and they give you a little taster and you're like, you know, I wasn't planning on it, but I'm definitely going to eat here. Well, that's what we're walking in right now. Verse 11. Oh, 10, I'm sorry. When he comes in that day to be glorified in his saints and to be admired among all those who believe, for that testimony among you was believed. The word admire, for what it's worth, is the word fomato, and it literally means to be in wonder, amazement, or to have your mind blown. Because there's the day Jesus is going to show up, and those who believe him are going to just go. Not just the unbeliever, they're going to go, wow. You know what it tells us when the Lord shows up? Two things are going to happen at the end of this all. One is we're going to go, wow, did I make you small? When we see Jesus, we're going to fall on our face. Our brains are going to ooze out of our heads. Hypothetically. (laughs) But you know what the other is? According to actually the books of Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28, we're going to look at the enemy, the devil, and they're going to say, is this really the man who shook the world? This, this is, this is, this is what we made so much a big deal about in church. Was this guy? 
you realize in the end of it all, what we're going to do is go, how did they make you so small? And then how did they make him so big? Consider that. So therefore, verse 11. Therefore, we also pray always for you that our God would currently be worthy of his calling and fulfill all the good pleasure of his goodness and the work of faith of God. That the name of our Lord Jesus Christ may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. A third of the way done with the book. There's that persecution you're experiencing. I want you to realize, people hammering you is only going to prove that God's judgment is righteous. And don't worry. Don't pay that. Chapter 2, verse 1. Now, brethren, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to Him, we ask you, not to be soon shaken in mind or troubled, either by spirit or by word or by letter, as if from us, as if the day of Christ had come. Okay, hold on. Three different ways, apparently, this rumor has been started. What are the three ways, according to verse 2? What does it mean by spirit? What does that mean? Yeah, I mean, put, a, put the scenario together. How would by spirit the day of Christ has already come? I can only tell you my impression on this, but again, it's just my opinion. You're welcome to disagree and be a Christian. But they're in some kind of esoteric spiritual experience. Church setting, everyone's kind of there and people are prophesying and false prophets are there, but you can't tell the difference at the moment. And everyone's going for it and going, someone goes, I have a word from the Spirit and it is that the day of Christ has already come. The idea of by spirit is by some spiritual experience, someone's saying this. You know, actually, it talks about in 1 Corinthians where it says, you know, you're having a hard time figuring out who the Holy Spirit is in us. He goes, you know, nobody could say Jesus is accursed by the Holy Spirit. The fact that he has to tell you that, that's like when God tells you not to eat a bat in Leviticus 11. I'm thinking, did he really have to tell you that? But somebody actually says, I have a word from God. Jesus is actually in hell for eternity. And you think, yeah, that's the Spirit of God. It gets that weird. And here, someone is actually saying, by spirit, that that day of the Lord has already come. What does it mean by word? Like, wrong interpretation of the Bible? Well, it doesn't say the word. That'd be a different article. It says the word. Yeah, yeah. It's the rumor mill. It's the, oh, did you hear about that? I was at this church service, and we were... I mean, this guy, I'm telling you, he's raised the dead and he's healed people now. He's like, the, the, we missed the rapture. Which I always think is kind of weird because if it's like, okay, the unrighteous missed the rapture, well then how is this guy telling you? <laughs> Third one says, or by letter, as if by us. Did someone actually put together something and say, love Paul, by the way, you missed it. Suck up. But, <laughs> right? but if that's the case, how did Paul miss it to write you the letter? Or did he send it airmail as he was on his way up? That's kind of a really strange thing. He goes, like, look at you guys. Stop being so freaked out as if the day of the Lord had already come. Okay, let me, let me, let me do this really quick here. You're welcome to write these down to check on me because I'd like you to, but we're recording so you can actually check it later. The day of the Lord. That is the day of the Lord. Let me tell you what the day of the Lord is according to Scripture. 
Isaiah 2, verse 12 says this, For the day of the Lord of hosts shall come upon everything proud and lofty, upon everything lifted up, and it shall be brought low. It's a day to bring down the proud. Isaiah 13, verse 6, His wail for the day of the Lord is at hand, it will come as destruction from the Almighty. Isaiah 13, 9, Behold, the day of the Lord comes, cruel with both wrath and fierce anger, to lay the land desolate, and he will destroy the sinners from it. Isaiah 34, 8, the day of the Lord's vengeance, the year of recompense for the cause of Zion. Well, it wasn't just Isaiah. Jeremiah 46, 10 says a day of vengeance that he may avenge himself on his adversaries. Ezekiel 30, verse 3 says it will be a day of clouds and a time of Gentiles. Wow. Joel 1, verse 15 says it shall come as destruction from the Almighty. Joel 2, 11 says for the day of the Lord is great and very terrible. Who can endure it? Joel 2.31 says the sun will be turned to darkness, the moon into blood before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord. That should sound familiar because it's what Peter quoted in in Acts chapter 2. Joel 3.14 says multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision. Remember the valley of decision? For the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. Amos 5 verse 18. It will be a day of darkness, not light. Obadiah verse 15 because there's no Obadiah 2. There's only one chapter. As you have done, so shall it be done to you. Your reprisal shall return on your own head. It is a day to pay back. Zephaniah 1.18 Neither their silver nor their gold will be able to deliver them in the day of the Lord's wrath. But the whole land shall be devoured by the fire of his jealousy and he will make speedy riddance of those who dwell in the land. And you go, well, that doesn't sound like a really great day. No, it isn't. If you're his enemy. Which day is it? This is the day when the Lord comes back. To set up his reign, his okay. millennial reign. In Zephaniah 2, listen to this verse. So you know that this whole idea of God removing his people is not a New Testament concept. Well, let me say this before I get to Zephaniah 2. How many times in the Old Testament can you think of God just outpouring his wrath? What's that? The flood? And there's one other. Sodom and Gomorrah. Excellent. Were there any people saved in those situations? And the situation with the flood, not a drop of rain fell until one thing happened first. What was it? Exactly. All of God's people were removed and sealed away. Did you get that? Then came the wrath. How about in the case of Sodom and Gomorrah? The angels come, and you know what they tell a lot? Remember that? This can't happen until you're out of here. Interesting. In both cases, God's wrath is poured forth. He removes his people and hides them away first. Now, man's wrath doesn't look like that. But God's wrath does. The problem with the Thessalonians is they were experiencing man's wrath, but they weren't experiencing God's wrath. Listen to Zephaniah 2.3. Seek the Lord, all you meek of the earth, who have upheld his justice, seek righteousness, seek humility, it may be that you will be hidden in the day of the Lord's anger. Sounds to me like the Lord knows how to pull his people aside, doesn't it? He also promises that Elijah will come before the great and terrible day of the Lord, Malachi 4.5. But this idea that the Lord will set people aside, then you go to the book of Revelation. And when he writes to the one missionary church, the 
fellow of the church of the Philippians, or not the Philippians, of Philadelphia. He says, because you have kept my command to endure, I will keep you from that hour of trial that's going to test the whole earth. Sounds like he's going to pull them away. Huh. Interesting. When you read the book of Revelation, when God pours forth what we know is the great tribulation, does anyone know what chapters those are? 6 through 19. I know you were just about to say that. I'm sorry I took it from you. (laughs) You're probably going to get 6 through 19, don't worry. In chapter 1 of Revelation, that's the easiest book to teach. Because he actually gives us the structure. He says, write the things that you have seen, the things which are, and the things which must take place after these things. Chapter 1, the things he's seen, a glorified Jesus. Jesus at home. It's amazing. You see the real person when you see him at home. Chapters 2 and 3, the things which are, the problems with the church. Seven different churches with seven different spiritual issues. It's like seven different checkups. Only one of them's really doing really well. One's like, yeah, you're doing well, but you're going to get persecuted to death, but you're going to be okay. Yeah, I actually don't think that's a really great checkup, but I like the fact you passed the test. But Philadelphia, you definitely want to be a Philly boy there. Then, that, remember the things which must take place after these things? The word for after these things is a single word in the Greek. The word is metatauta. Try that word. Metatauta. Why is that so important? Because in chapter... Four, the first verse starts and ends with that word. In case you were missing it, now it's the after these things things. And in chapters 4 and 5, John is brought up to heaven and he sees this amazing throne of God. And he sees the seal. The seal that will take back the land. It's like the... Think of it, because this is actually very appropriate for our, our nation here. It's ousting the squatters. There is a particular process that needs to happen here to get squatters out of your house. Well, there it took three things. The first thing is you had to prove your ownership, and that came with a, with a sealed deed. The only person who can open it is the owner. Second, then you had to publicly proclaim it. And the way you publicly proclaimed it is you blew trumpets and assembled all the leaders from the land. Third, you had to purify the land because they've desecrated it by their squatting. Does that make sense? I mean, let's face it. People squatted in your house. Wouldn't you give it a one good once over to make sure it was nice and clean? Bug bomb it a few times. You realize that's the whole tribulation? It starts with the scroll. And then it's three sets of judgments. The scroll, as the seals are open. Then the trumpets, as the trumpets are blown. And then the bowls that were poured out. It's the same thing as taking your land back. But in 4 and 5, John sees this innumerable, this most amazing worship service. I mean, thousands upon thousands upon thousands, which would make, for all due respect to Hillsong and the O2, which is still an awesome thing, it would make that thing look like a pea shooting contest. Because it's just millions of people that are worshiping God at the same time. John is brought to this amazing worship service. The question is, who's worshiping him at that moment? Is it angels? Or is it people? Well, I'd like you to listen to what actually they say there. And this comes from Revelation chapter 5, verses 9 and 10. You are worthy to open the scroll and to open its seals. Speaking of Jesus, the Lamb that was slain, it says, For you were slain and have redeemed us to God 
by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation. You've made us kings and priests to our God and we shall reign on the earth. My question is, who are the only ones who could say that? Angels have been redeemed by God. Angels have been bought by the blood of Christ. Angels are made kings and priests to God on earth. It's only us. It is only God's people who have been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. We don't read that angels, that Jesus died for a single angel. We don't read that the blood shed on the cross redeemed any angel. But it sure did redeem you and it redeemed me. Chapters 4 and 5 is a worship service and you're a part of it. When we worship God now, think of it as rehearsal. Because there's going to be a day... Well, let me say it this way. As a choir director, since I was 11, writing for choirs, one of the things I had the privilege of is this thing called Music Hell in the States. These Christian schools from all over the area, would, would they'd pick out a handful of songs, I think it was seven songs, and then every one of the schools learned those same seven songs. And then they would adjudicate you on them, make sure you got the right marks and all that. For what it's worth, we got perfect scores Anyways, but, uh, and then what would happen is they would then bring all of these schools together. And these schools that would have 50, 100, 150, 200 people would all get together to sing those same seven songs directed often by the guy who wrote a lot of those songs. So all of a sudden, these things that you were hearing in a microcosm now are being sung by 10,000 people. Mad is sounding. Daphne, you can feel your feet shake, as people would say. And I just remember that moment, and I realized... All of our rehearsal was for the big thing. This is the big thing. And again, the whole point of it is, the day of the Lord is a day when he comes, sets up his reign, and ultimately brings justice upon the troublers and his enemies. But you're not a troubler nor his enemy, so you get to be removed. Glory to God for that. If it's a day that's going to test the earth, you don't need to be there, because if you've accepted Christ, you've already passed the test. And once you've passed it, you don't need to take it a second time. Glory to God for that. Does that make sense? So he's going to talk about that day, that day of the Lord. But it's like, the whole point of it is, clearly that hasn't happened because some things are going to have to take place before that takes place. Well, look at it with me. Verse 3. And no one deceives you by any means. That day will not come unless falling away. One thing we're going to recognize is before the day of the Lord comes, there will not be a great revival. I would love there to be a great revival. But what he says is instead there will be a great falling away. The word for falling away, the word for away or out is apo. The word for stand is histia, like histamine. Like antihistamine means to stand against. So apostemi or apostasia is where we get the word apostasy from. And that's the word here. In other words, that day will not come without a great apostasy first. The massive mega, and I'm not saying mega church is a, is a model. I'm saying the massive church in mass, there will be a massive falling away. Well, what's going to lead him astray? Well, let's keep reading. But understand, the Antichrist can't come as long as the church is vibrant. We'll see that in a moment. 
to oppose and exalt himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped, so that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. Okay, I have to say this. Does it say that the Antichrist is going to show himself in a temple or the temple here? That's the one thing missing. There isn't the temple at the moment. However, there is an institute who has built every piece of furniture. They even have an ark. And they certainly have a menorah. And they're just waiting for the moment. Remember that? You remember that? See, Nick just came back from Israel. Right? Mm-hmm. We were there together. It is important to note, and let me give you a couple verses, by the way, for what it's worth. I won't be developing everything. These are just the two most abused areas of this text, so at least I wanted to make clear, like the day of the Lord. There should be no enemy of God that goes, yay, the day of the Lord. You know, that's like, yay, the day I get my bucket. This Antichrist. Write down these verses, please, and check this on me. Daniel 7.25 He will speak great and pompous words against the Most High and persecute the saints and shall intend to change times and law. One thing I'll expect from this guy is they will actually try to create new things out of it, new holidays, and change the law. It says in Daniel 8.25, Through this coming he shall cause deceit to prosper. Lies will actually prosper under his rule. He will exalt himself in his heart. He will destroy many in their prosperity. You know what that means, right? It means he will go after the rich and start taking them down. He'll even rise up against the prince of princes, but he shall be broken without human means. It says in Daniel 9.27, He will confirm a covenant with many for a week, but in the middle of the week, he will bring an end to the sacrifice and offering. Now a week is how long? Or in this case, seven years. So the middle of seven years is how long? Three and a half years. As a matter of fact, I find it interesting, there's three different ways it's listed in Scripture. Three and a half years, 42 months, or a time, times, and half a time. They're all the same. But it says that in the middle of that time, he'll bring an end to sacrifice and offering, which means that obviously not only the temple is, is, is constructed, but there will actually be sacrifice and offering being made there. But he'll put an end to it. And on the wing of abomination shall be the one who makes desolate, even until the consummation which is determined is poured out on the desolate. God bless you. Listen to Daniel 11.21. And in this place there will arise a vile person to whom they will not give the honor of royalty, but he shall come in peaceably and seize the kingdom by intrigue. He's going to slip in and every social justice-minded individual, be it the church or otherwise, is going to jump right behind him. So he's going to, he's going to diss Jesus, but he's going to be socially minded. And a church that's more focused on the social justice than the king of justice will follow him blindly. Daniel 11.36 says he will exalt and magnify himself above everything that is called God speak blasphemies against the God of God but it says in the next verse 37 he will regard neither the God of his fathers which leads me to be maybe he's Jewish nor the desire of women hmm. 
that the LGBTEE, which stands for everything else that just keeps me from adding letters, he'll be a huge campaigner for that. And boy, are we, are we right for that. They have no regard for the God of his fathers, nor the desire of women, nor regard any God, for he shall exalt himself above them all. Daniel 11.38 says that he'll honor the God of fortresses. He'll honor, by the way, with gold and silver, precious stones and pleasant things, the man going to be rich. In Daniel 11.43, he'll have power over the treasures of gold and silver and over the precious things of Egypt. And he'll make war on everything to the south and just dominate. He'll plant the tents of his palace between the seas and the glorious holy mountains. Which means, by the way, in the area of the Valley of Jezreel. When he sets himself up, people will say, and it says he is given for a time, times and half a time, to make war against the saints and overcome them. He will look invincible. But I want you to recognize the church is never supposed to be led astray by him and there's two things that he'll use to lead him astray and the first is social justice. I'm not saying social justice is bad. I think social justice makes sense but it better be attached to eternity. What I've learned in any cause is we get so cause-minded we'll bring people in who don't believe what we believe because the cause becomes more important than the Jesus and then all of a sudden we lose track on what in the world we're trying to accomplish. And we have, as a history of that, the pro-life movement. Hey, please understand, I totally get the idea of why people want to save unborn children. Although, personally, my whole thing is, I think we need to reach out to the mothers, because the whole thing isn't about a baby. To me, it's about a mother who's going to have to spend the rest of her life dealing with those issues. And I've done enough counseling to know what happens when that woman walks through a park and sees a woman pushing a pram and recognizes that could have been her. And she hears the cry of a baby and it haunts her because it sounds like the ghost of a baby that she could have. That woman has to spend the rest of her life with that and I'd rather see her delivered from that. But when people get caught up in their thing and then they start bringing in, it's like, let's face it, any cause will be a magnet for crazy people who just love to cause trouble. And look at, I don't care what it is, you will be, there, will be, there will be people happy to shoot someone for Black Lives Matter They'll be happy to shoot things for hashtag me too. They'll be happy for people to shoot people for whatever the thing is. But the reason why you stand on those things is because you believe in Jesus. And because of that, these things are important. Be careful. Because I want to let you know, the church is already willing to be led by hook and crook by someone who's just a campaigner for these things. And he is going to come in by peace. He's going to eradicate poverty by eradicating riches and he's going to start eliminating um, all kinds of epidemics I mean the guy's going to be like feed the poor and help the you know feed the, the hungry and help the poor and I mean people are going to be like yes and there will be a handful of people if the Lord hasn't come yet like myself that will be like I'm not really sure about this and they'll be and you know what happened? the church will look at you and go shut up spoil sport narrow-minded fundamentalist. I am a narrow-minded fundamentalist. I want you to know, as narrow as Scripture makes it, because I've learned you could be so open-minded, your brain spills out, and I'm not interested in that. But be careful, please. All right. I've done enough of my ranting here. But he exalts himself, and he sits at the temple saying he's God. 
Oh, by the way, that one other thing in that, there is a wall. Just look at this on your own, Ezekiel 42.10, or 42.20, where he talks about a wall between the holy and the profane. And it's fairly likely that it may very well be that there'll just be a wall that will actually be able to allow them to build something beside it so that both can coincide. I'm not sure if that's going to happen, but it would make sense that a guy could come in and talk peace in the Middle East by going, let's let a temple be built on that part right there, and you guys can still have your shrine of Omar and everything's cool. Now, I can't tell you that's the case, but I can tell you it's not the Wailing Wall. And the reason I know that is this particular wall, it tells us, by the way, is roughly 250 meters by 250 meters. That's a tall wall. The Wailing Wall, even from its foundation, not even just the part you see, but the whole of it, is 105 by 32 meters. It's nowhere near the size of the wall that God speaks about in Ezekiel 42. Okay. Verse 5. Remember ye not that when I was with, yet with you, I told you these things. Which means in the three weeks that Paul was there, he mentioned this. This was part of the New Believers Foundations class. And I don't know what to strain you that he may be revealed in his own time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. Okay, what in the world? There's two basic answers to this, right? The church and the Holy Spirit. Which one is it? Have you ever thought that maybe God doesn't make things really clear sometimes because there could be more than one answer? Sometimes they're like, well, which one is it? God actually said, I didn't say it had to be. The, that which restrains is in the neuter. And what that means is it's not male or female. So it's a thing. But the restrainer is a he. Did you notice that? And I'm just trying to read it carefully. Something is restraining the Antichrist from having full reign, and that thing is a thing. I would dare say that's the church. But he being taken out of the way, will the Holy Spirit not be here during the reign of the Antichrist? Actually, he has to be. And the reason I say that is because people are going to get saved through that time. And the only way people get saved is through the power of the Holy Spirit. But that doesn't mean he isn't taken out of the way. According to the term that is here, ginemai atmesos, the idea of it literally, by the way, is in the aorist, Middle active, which, by the way, is active, subjective. What that means is active means he makes the choice. Remember that? The church needs to be removed because the church is the one thing stopping the world from going to hell. But you know, one of the things is, I remind you, the church is going to be at a place where so much of the church is no obstacle to anything but those who are actually still stopping the world from going to hell. But the Holy Spirit is going to step out of the way and then start working on the hearts of people. So my answer is, I think, both. The church will be removed. The real church, those that love him, because will be hidden during the time of God's wrath. But the Holy Spirit will step out of the way, let the Antichrist do his madness, and then start convicting hearts to save lives. Why would the Holy Spirit do that? Because that's the only way some people will say yes to him. And you know, God doesn't have a problem letting your life get horrible if that's what it takes for you to come to him. And we've heard enough testimonies about people who are at the brink of their own death, even wanting to kill themselves. But that's what it took for them to actually cry out to the Lord. I wouldn't want you there, 
But if it gets you to Jesus, I'm glad it happened. Does that make sense? But remember that every, he's going to make war with the saints and overcome them, and they'll say, who can make war with this guy? This guy's invincible. Um, one of my favorite verses, verse 8. And then the lawless one will be revealed. Whom the Lord will consume with the breath of his mouth and destroy with the brightness of his coming. Okay. You ever think that it's like Jesus and Satan are like on the ropes? Like one of those horrible Raw or WWE things or whatever, you know? It's like, oh, he's out. One, two, oh, he's back up. Let me give you a couple words. The word consume is the word añerejo. And añerejo, by the way, means to slay violently. What is the Lord going to slay the Antichrist with? His breath. Now, we're all aware, perhaps, that the word pneuma also is the word for spirit. I'm assuming it isn't that he is breath so bad. Does this sound like a really big battle? And then the word destroy, is the word kasargecho, it literally means to make nothing of, to bring to naught. What will Jesus bring? To, how will Jesus bring to naught? What will he use for that? For the Antichrist? What does it say? The brightness is coming. So the Antichrist is like, you had this wound and it's healed, and oh, he's amazing, and he's resurrected, and oh, he's got the powers, and, no, and all this stuff. Oh, my goodness. Oh, who can make war against that guy? And Jesus goes, whoa, boom! And that's the whole story, and now it's the fight. What an awesome fight that is. And boy, the way, I actually, I'm already petitioning for front row seats on that one. I want you to know. Y'all with me on that? Let me tell you about the other thing the enemy, the enemy, the Antichrist is going to use to lead the church astray. Verse 9. The coming of the lowest one is according to the working of Satan with all power, signs, and mind wonders. A church that is consumed solely in signs and wonders for the purpose of signs and wonders will also be led astray by this guy. Because this guy, by the way, notice it says with all power and with all signs. The only difference is his wonders are lying. But his power isn't and his signs aren't either. This guy is going to be a miracle man. This guy is going to look like an X-Man. And I think we've never been in a generation, by the way, the terms that are used here are terms about superhuman qualities. Like, We've been primed for the last 10 years for the, by the Marvel Universe alone. And I'm not trying to pick on it, but it's like, oh yeah, this guy's like, we're going to go like, that guy's like Thor, but he's also like Loki. He's kind of, I mean, we'll be able to pull names out and be able to liken this guy too. But imagine a church that's like, what we really need are more signs and wonders and they'll look and go, dude, this is the guy we need in our church. I wonder how many churches he'll speak at. Okay, and by the way, you'll see that there's one thing that the church is refusing here in verse 10. And with all unrighteous deception among those who perish, because they did not receive the love of the truth, that they might be saved. What is the one thing that they would not receive? Yeah, so guess what the problem is? They're not interested in truth. They just want power. Please don't be that person. And for this reason, God will send them strong delusion that they should believe the lies that they all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. Okay, we're almost done because the third chapter just kind of rolls quickly and says, get off your butt and do stuff. The word delusion. Is that kind of weird? God sent a delusion? The word is planai. And planai, by the way, means fraud. See, what God's going to say is, now look at what it says. They will not believe the truth, but they rather add pleasure in unrighteousness. These are, by the way, these are both active choices. 
They won't love the truth. So God's going to give them a fraud so they have something to choose. God's like almighty, all true grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. But he's going to give you a choice, but the choice is to your own destruction. But he always gives man a choice because love isn't love without it. The good news is, verse 13, we are bound to give thanks to God always for you, brother and beloved of the Lord, because God from the beginning chose you for salvation through the sanctification by the Spirit, by the way, and the belief in the truth. For which he called you by our gospel, for the attaining of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, brethren, stand fast and hold the traditions which you were taught, whether by word or our now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and our God and Father, he has loved us and given us everlasting consolation and good hope by grace. Conquer your hearts and establish you in every good work and work. Okay, now, last thing, and let's just read to you that last chapter. Chapter 1, yeah, you're getting hammered for your faith. Don't worry, God's going to take care of that. But when he does, you're going to see that it was righteous that him to judge that way. Chapter 2, do you really think that you're in that? You really think this is what the Great Tribulation looks like? This is nothing in comparison. The Great Tribulation, by the way, is going to have a big, really bad, nasty character, but he's going to get his, too, for what it's worth. And by the way, that even can't even happen until the church is taken out of the way. So don't worry about that yet. So stop freaking out about that. God knows what to do. So finally, verse 1, chapter 3. Finally, brethren, pray for us that the word of the Lord may run swiftly and be glorified, just as it is with you, and that we may be delivered from unreasonable and wicked men who are not always our faith. For the Lord is faithful, who will establish you and guard you from evil. And we have confidence in the Lord concerning you, both that you do, both that you do and will do the things we command you. Now may the Lord direct your hearts into the love of God and into the patience of Christ. But we command you, brethren, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that you withdraw from every brother who walks disorderly and does according to the tradition which he received from us. For you yourselves know how, how you ought to follow us, for we were not disorderly among you. Nor do we eat anyone's bread free of charge, but worked with labor and toil both night and day, that we might not be a burden to any of you. Not because we do not have authority, but to make ourselves an example of how you should follow us. But even when we were with you, we commanded you this, say no, we're not with it, neither shall we be. For we hear that there are some who walk among you in a disorderly manner, not working at all, but a busybody. Now them that are with now them that are with we command and exalt by our Lord Jesus Christ, that with quietness they work and eat their own bread. Can I have to ask you a question? Now read these verses, be a Bible student here. Paul says, separate yourself, withdraw yourself from every brother who walks disorderly. According to these verses, what does walk disorderly look like? You would think that would be the most obvious, but look at what he actually speaks about as his example from that point on. By the way, you should withdraw from those people too. I think that's fair. Yeah, yeah. Lazy mooches. 
He goes, you need it. And notice he says, by the way, the word tradition isn't like, the word, by the way, is the word paradisis. And paradisis, by the way, just means the things we've handed, the things mm-hmm. that we continue to, to hand over. It's like, you know the life we lived? We didn't want to be a burden to any of you. We had no problem working with our hands because we didn't want to charge you for the gospel. Because, but you better take careful note of those who basically have found that the church is the place to mooch. They're like, dude, I could go from church to church and church, and I could, I mean, if I were homeless and I didn't have any money, man, let's face it, in England, everybody has snack time after church. You'd think I could, pro- I could, I could eat like a king if I just went to enough services. And he's like, I wonder, notice he doesn't say that about unbelievers. He says, withdraw from every person who's going to call himself a brother who does this. Do you know why, by the way, this is the case? Not because you should just treat them like jerks. Because he wants them to repent. Well, go ahead. We'll go from there. What verse are we at? Uh, yeah. 13. 13. For as for you, brethren, do not grow weary in doing good. And if anyone does not obey your, um, our word in this epistle, know that person and do not keep company with him, that he may be ashamed. Do not counsel him then, but admonish him of the brother. Now may the Lord of peace himself give you peace always and everywhere. The Lord be with you all. The salutation of Paul with my own hand, which is a sign in every epistle so I write. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. So let me ask you this. If anyone does not obey our word in this epistle, note that person, and don't keep company with them so that they would be ashamed. But don't count him as an enemy, admonish him as a brother. How do you not keep company with somebody but admonish them as a brother? Saying, dude, well, that's my, you're not there. You might, you might say brother. Right. Dude, if you're going to live this way, I can't hang out with you. But I want you to know I love you, and I want to hang out with you, but I have a biblical mandate. Could you imagine saying that? And by the way, take a look at 1 Corinthians 6, and what you're going to see is there's a whole lot of other lists. There's a list of other things of people calling themselves brothers you're not supposed to be hanging with either. When Billy Graham was asked by Woody Allen and by the very antagonist BBC uh, presenters, so are you saying this was the common phrase I saw used. Are you saying that it's not right for you to sleep with your girlfriend before you're married? Are you saying that I can't do this? And I love Billy Graham's answer. He says, it doesn't matter what I say. It matters what the Bible says. <laughs> and this is what the Bible says. But if you know the Bible, you could say the problem you have is not with me. It's with the author. And that's what you're going to need to reconcile with. But have your verses. But in love, you're going to talk to them. In love, and go, I want you to know I don't want to do this either. But I can't encourage your disobedience by being disobedient. I'm trying to be obedient, and I want you to know this isn't easy for me, but I really... Could you read these verses and tell me what I'm supposed to do? You're like, look at This isn't so that because I don't want to hang out with you and because it's not you, it's me. It is you. <laughs> but, 
But I want you restored. But I realize if you're going to live this way, we're not restored this way. And I love you. And I love you enough to say that the most unloving thing I can do is give you a false sense of security and make you think you're okay when you're not. But can I hear that there are those? Paul's like, you know what I'm hearing? I'm hearing crazy rumors. You guys have your crazy rumors about the, you know, that you're in the you're in the tribulation. Well, I hear crazy rumors too, and that is that you've got all these slackers that are just mooching off of everyone else because after all, it's all grace. And someone like says, this is a great place to capitalize on that. And he goes, you know, you need to do with those guys. You need to go. Sorry, we ain't hanging. We ain't hanging. He goes, but the moment you're willing to step up, I am willing to welcome you home. Now, which one of you wants to do that? But, which one of you would tell me that's not disobedience if we don't? That's a heavy trip. But the Lord will give you that because I've learned, I think I can comfortably tell you I'm the oldest of one at the table here. You probably rub two of you together and come up with me. Uh, that I've been around the block enough to know that there are going to be those who are going to just do the IHateYou.com website as a result of that. And there are others, and even some of those people are going to turn around and ultimately repent. Some people won't. But they're going to stand before God one day. I have the feeling God will show the film of your tears. I can't think of a single person that I've had to do something like this. And since I, God bless you, since I've been here, I've had to do this more than I've ever had to do in my life. And I can't think of a single person I haven't shed tears over that I've had to do something like this with. Where you're like, you know, I'm not telling you I'm perfect because it isn't about me. It's about this verse. And I'm trying to be obedient. And I'm asking for your help here. You know, if you just repented, we wouldn't even have to deal with this. Well, you're being judgmental. No, I'm willing to submit to the same rule. And if you were the one living cool and, and I was doing this, you would have a right to not hang out with me either. But please, change your mind because I'd really like to hang out with you. But I have to choose God over you. Yeah, doesn't that make you feel really good inside? It does if it's the only thing that brings a person back. And I'll be honest, some of these cases, it really is the only thing that brings a person back. Because they can always go find someone else that's going to tell them they're okay to do their stupid things. But when a guy's got emphysema and he's still smoking and you love him and you say, stop smoking, and they're like, no, 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 it's cool. And you're like, no, 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 I know this is killing you and you're contributing to your own death here. I well, you can, you can go to one of the smoke rooms and that would be all kinds of, oh, no, they're just a bunch of liars. You can always find somebody to endorse your, your, your madness. But in chapter 1, I remind you, these people were already being persecuted, so they already know how to get hammered for their faith. Don't worry, God's going to take care of that. In chapter 2, don't worry, you're not in the great tribulation. He'll take you out of that. In chapter 3, since he hasn't come yet, this is no time to slack. This is no time for procrastination. This is time for pragmatism. Because in the end of it all, everything you do that's temporary isn't going to matter when he comes. When you stand before him, you will not wish you've done one more thing temporary. So I just want to pray for us. And then we're going to take a little bit of time and just worship God in song. And uh, I want to remind you 
If you're his, his coming is a good thing. If it's a stormy night out and you have a great relationship with your dad and you know he's pulling into the driveway, that's a good feeling. If you broke something and you've been living like a fool and dad's pulling up in the driveway, it's an entirely different feeling now, isn't it? So which kid do you want to be in the house? Because right now, if my dad were to pull up, I'm all, I'm jumping out the door to meet him there. And I'd say that every one of us has that attitude. Pray with me, would you?